Humans long for happiness, and a happiness that can't be taken away from them. That's at the heart of people who want immortality. Uh, they love their spouse, they love their children, they love their grandchildren. They like to see love go on. But sometimes these same people don't know what to do with themselves on a boring Sunday afternoon. I mean, eternity's forever. Do you have a plan for eternity? The idea of suffering and death is scary. Not just suffering, not just death, but what happens after. The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. Why else would we willingly put up with a medical system that seemingly will spend any sum to keep us alive for a few extra days or weeks. We don't live that much longer, really. Instead, we just die more slowly. We're all more content with what we know and fear what we do not know. There have been various philosophical approaches to death over the centuries. Probably the most famous uh, philosopher is Plato, and reportedly, as he lay dying, he called for a flute player to come and pipe away while he was dying. And Plato tapped his finger to keep the time. We look to the past for examples of how to die. St. Augustine, whose feast day we just celebrated, lived in a world that did not have penicillin, aspirin, anesthesia, morphine, or much of any understanding of the importance of washing your hands or wearing a mask. Grinding poverty, terrific suffering. Still, then as now, what happiness was in his world, and he did have some happiness. What happiness that was there, Augustine thought, was at best temporary and deeply problematic. St. Augustine reasoned that our hearts desire a supreme good, and that supreme good would be happiness that never goes away. And that supreme good must be in another world because he said, it's not available in this world. The supreme good for us would be eternal happiness, as for St. Augustine. We all want that. If eternal happiness, real happiness that could not be taken away, can't be found in this life, then if it's going to be found at all, it'll be in another life. Albert Camus, the famous atheist existentialist philosopher who lived in the last century, uh, was an author and he wrote books about what it means to be uh, in the absence of the belief of God. And he wrote about suffering. He wrote a book about the plague, which tried to deal with the problem of suffering during the the imaginary plague in his book, The Plague. And he wrote all this about 1,500 years after St. Augustine. It, you know, the interesting thing about Camus was that he was an Augustine scholar. He'd written his thesis on him when he went through his uh, French education, but he just didn't, he just didn't believe. Um, but Camus once wrote that the only serious question in philosophy is whether or not you would commit suicide. That's in the myth of Sisyphus. It, this is the quote from the opening lines of that, of that story. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, Camus wrote, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering 
the fundamental question of philosophy. Do you remember uh, Fulton Sheen, Venerable Fulton Sheen? Uh, his famous uh, show was called uh, Life is Worth Living, uh, clearly an answer to Camus' challenge. But you know, Camus' claim uh, that the most important question is whether life is worth living, whether or not you just take your own life when it gets bad enough, was a claim the Stoics made in St. Augustine's time. And he said, boy, if you believe that, what do you really believe about happiness and life? You know, I've known people who have taken their lives, people in my own family who I love very much. It's very, very hard. But I pray about them, I think about them, but I think the sufferings of this life are behind them and I hope something better awaits them in the future. I hope for that. We should all understand how fragile life and happiness are. Life can overwhelm our modest strengths and virtues. Camus once pointed out that your reason for living might also be your reason for dying. That was an interesting line. That same existential paradox, your reason for living and your reason for dying, is what the gospel is about today. The meaning of life, the search for that meaning, is the most urgent of all questions. All happiness in this life is provisional. And what I mean by that is, hey, I'm happy, provided that I'm healthy, safe, comfortable, and loved. I'm happy as long as I don't get too frustrated. Happiness is pretty fragile. You don't have to be a believer to accept the truth of what I just said. Jesus speaks of happiness in the gospel. He also talks about death, suffering, shame, reconciliation, and faith. In fact, they're at the heart of the story in the gospel today, where Jesus, in an uncompromisingly blunt way, tells us what we need to do to save our life. Do you want to save your life? Think about this one. It's the one serious question in each of our lives. This is Oral Valley Catholic and I'm Father John Arnold. So the Gospels from the 16th chapter of Matthew and if you remember last week, uh, Peter made his confession of faith uh, to Jesus. So Jesus is there, Caesarea Philippi, the gospel says. And uh, he asked people, who would you say that I am? And all these guys say, well, Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of the prophets, John the Baptist. I mean, if you go through the different gospels, he always asks this question. And people threw out those answers. You know, the thing that, all those answers have in common to Jesus's question is that they're all dead people. Why would they associate Jesus with the voice of God and all of these men that are dead? Well, Peter's the one who gets it right. You remember, you're the son of God. So Jesus says to Peter that, Peter, you're the rock and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of death would not overcome it. So the rock is Peter's faith. It's his ability to proclaim who Jesus is. But it's also the office of the papacy, which is the ministry of unity in Christianity. But 
Peter, it being Peter, uh, is also the subject of the gospel today because this is one story. Last week, Peter was the champion. This week, not so much. Because what happens after Jesus says, you're the rock, then Jesus says that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'll be crucified, I'll rise from the dead after three days. Well, Peter, after he listens to Jesus describe his upcoming passion and death, decides to do what any loving friend would do. Uh, Try to talk him down off the ledge. You can't really mean what you're saying. And then the Lord rebuked him, if you remember, get behind me, Satan. It's the same rebuke that Jesus gives to Satan, essentially, in the story of the temptation in the desert. How interesting that that at the heart of that temptation is that Jesus would avoid the cross. So Peter was playing a satanic role in the gospel. And it is what prompted Jesus to instruct what being his disciple really entailed. So here's what Jesus said in the gospel. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay all according to his conduct. Remember Camus' question, the most important question in life was whether or not to commit suicide. Well, I'm going to suggest to you the most important question in life is, who do you say that he is? Because so much is dependent on that. Because at the heart of it is what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with eternity? What Jesus says is, in order to save your life, you have to lose it. So what does this life offer? What are you risking? Well, love, family, friendship, beauty, temporary appetites and thrills, followed inevitably by suffering, death, and loss. There's a reason why we Catholics use the way of the cross as a meditation. Jesus said that we're supposed to walk behind him and imitate him. And the paradox of discipleship is the paradox of the cross. There is no other ladder to heaven, according to Jesus, without the shame and the suffering of Good Friday. So when you walk behind Jesus and his cross, what do you see? I'd like you to think about that because the art of living well is also the art of dying well. Jesus brings together the entirety of life in his teaching on the cross. Consider it this way. Have you ever heard of the Ars Moriendi? The Ars Moriendi literally means the art of dying well. Christian morality is all about the art of living well and dying well. Morality is our plan for life and death. The gospel isn't fundamentally about morality, though Jesus, St. Paul especially, talks about how we're supposed to live our life, what we're supposed to do. The gospel is about God and who God is. 
and how God is present in this world. And if you want to see him clearly, then you have to pay attention to how you live and how you die. Otherwise, you'll just walk by him on the road. So where's the word ars morandi come from, the phrase? It uh, is a Latin phrase, obviously, and it goes back really to the early 15th century. The first ars morandi was written in Latin, and it offered advice to late medievals on how they ought to prepare for death. Remember, this is the time, just like with St. Augustine, there's no penicillin, there's the Black Death, there's the Hundred Years' War still raging. It's the time of Joan of Arc uh, when all of this is done. And so there's this massive dislocation in European society. It makes our present struggles look childish. I mean, it just, it really upended European society and prepared the way for even greater convulsions in the Reformation. But that dislocation created distrust in God and the church. Ergo, the Reformation. And many other books followed about the Ars Morandi, how to prepare for death, because people were very concerned with this idea of what it was they were to do with their life. You know, in our own country, with its predominantly Protestant background, various versions of the Ars Moriendi informed people how to deal with death. It kind of morphed over time. And I know you'll recognize some of this because it's, it's kind of lingered. So having family around the death bed was very important, especially for people of the Victorian era. Um, there were rules about how long after death women should wear their black dress and veil their faces. If you ever remember the movie Gone with the Wind, uh, Scarlett O'Hara, after her husband died, uh, had to wear black dresses, but she was going to dances anyway. Not that she cared that he was dead, apparently. There were rules also about men, and they were, have, were to wear a black armband as a sign of their mourning. The Ars Moriendi is, isn't just about how you prepare for your own personal death. It's also how you prepare for and think about death of those you love most in life. Uh, how you gather around their deathbed, what you do after they die. So much of our own rights surrounding death come out of these ancient customs. So what do you think we're doing with death now? Because it says something about how we think about life, I suspect. Remember Camus, what he said? He said, your reason for living may well be your reason for dying. So if you look at how Americans die today, what's it say about how they live? You know, what really started to change American attitudes about death, and cultural change takes a while, but always there's something of trauma involved. The Black Death, the Black Plague, for instance, and and the Reformation. But for us, um, the big trauma was the American Civil War, and it upended so much of American customs surrounding death. Dr. Drew Gilpin, she's a past president of Harvard University and the author of This Republic of Suffering, explained how the carnage of the American Civil War, both on and off the battlefield, challenged, challenged concepts of a good death. If you're looking for a good history book to read, boy, that's a good one. She said, as the war drug on, advances in embalming found their way into the American experience of death. She also said, 
that there were different embalmings. Officer embalming was more expensive than enlisted men embalming. And apparently the results bore that out, according to Dr. Gilpin. Um, but the embalming is what really leads, leads to the increased costs of funerals today. Um, the, the funeral industry, really, as we understand it, um, has its roots in the American Civil War. People would die at the front, and people, families would want their bodies shipped home so that it could be buried because so many guys were just buried in unmarked graves or just their bodies rotted out on the surface because the war was just moving so fast and was so overwhelming. And so many died of disease in the camps. So the idea of embalming and the casket and all of these things, well, there are always caskets. But if you look at why people talk about cremation today, it's because the cost of all of these uh, rights of embalming that have been with us about 150 years uh, are just pricing some people out of that traditional understanding of the funeral. You know, the church permits cremation, but insists that the cremated body be treated with respect and interred in consecrated ground. Otherwise, mom, dad, your spouse, or other loved ones end up uh, in the home or spread out in the peach tree or under the peach tree in the backyard, like my dad's old law partner, or some dramatic, other dramatic spots. Sometimes in, they end up in a thrift shop. That's actually happened in Tucson. We've had cremated remains abandoned at our parish, and it's difficult to try to bury cremated remains if family members won't be involved and give their permission. You know, our long history of Christian burial means we treat even cremated remains with respect and inter them in consecrated ground. But when we don't treat cremated remains with respect like it's a body, what's it say about how we think about the body and how we think about life? This is why you read people like Camus. It makes you ask good Catholic questions. And so let's put that aside for a bit. There's something to think about as you plan for your own funeral and think through what you're going to do and what you want. But the more fundamental question is why live at all? What does it mean to live and to die well? First, when it comes to all these funeral things, talk to your family. Don't be afraid to do funeral planning. And then think about how it is that you're gonna live your death because that's at the heart of Jesus' gospel how you're gonna give your life away. So here's three rules for dying that you're free to ignore, but I think that if you wanna follow Jesus, you ought to at least give them serious consideration. My rule number one for living and dying well, do as Jesus did. It's always good priestly advice. Do as Jesus did. Forgive the sinner hanging on her cross next to you. Hey, we're all on the cross. Everybody is dying, fast or slow. And so when people think about what a good death is, mostly people would say, I want it quick and painless. But I gotta tell you, that's not the best death. It's a way to avoid suffering. And avoiding suffering is a good thing, if you can. Uh, but remember that good belongs to God. And so a good death, Good equals mercy. 
So a good death, the best death, is when you're, you or your loved one can mend fences, build bridges, tie up loose ends, and leave nothing unsaid. You die a good death if in preparation for that moment of death, today you seek reconciliation. Because it's what Jesus did on the cross. It is how you bear your cross. There's lots of things about putting up with frustrations and the inconveniences of life. That's, that's all part of the cross. But the deep end of the pool, there's always gonna be reconciliation for people who feel disconnected from one another. Jesus' death on the cross was the time of reconciliation. Remember the good thief was promised paradise, so there was hope for each of us. Being in the room when someone is dying, surrounded by family, is one of the great experiences of faith and love you will ever experience. It's also the experience of reconciliation. Some families do it very well, especially estranged family members, which is often the case seeking this last moment and opportunity for reconciliation. And so death has the capacity to be a moment of great healing. So rule number one, do as Jesus did. Forgive the sinner hanging on the cross next to you. Rule number two, do as Jesus did. Strive to accept God's will. So should you pursue reasonable courses of care to maintain your life? even though you've been given this uh, statement that you're gonna die by perhaps your doctor? Well, absolutely you should do what you can to preserve your life. Should you use reasonable medical resources to manage pain, anxiety, and discomfort? Absolutely. Please pay attention to the word reasonable. Should you hope that every sacrifice act of mercy, corporal and spiritual, that you've ever performed for love of Jesus and your neighbor will bear fruit in your life to come? Absolutely. So take care of your body. Uh, suffering unnecessary pain isn't God's will for you. So do what's reasonable. Because in the end, all our lives are in God's hands. They always were since the day of our baptism. Hope is always about another place where the supreme good is available. And that should change how we feel about this place and the hope with which we uh, accept our upcoming death. So at home, dying in bed, or at the side of the one you love who's dying in the hospice or in the hospital, you're in God's hands, they're in God's hands, you're safe. Your loved one is safe in God's hands. All other ideas of safety are an illusion. Yeah, this is hard. Everything truly profound is hard work. You cannot give away what you can't accept. Why, when did Jesus do this? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asked that this cup pass him. Do as Jesus did, accept God's will for you. And here's a little bit of good advice. Don't forget to call the parish priest for the anointing of the sick. That is the last rites, extreme unction. Earn brownie points, though, and the thanks from your priest by doing it in advance and possibly in the middle of the day. If you do it in the middle of the day, the priest might actually pray for the repose of your soul. One time, I was called to the hospital at 2 a.m. to anoint a lady who did eventually die some days later. She was, however, upon my arrival at 2 a.m., half awake, half asleep. 
She was sitting up in bed eating meatloaf and mashed potatoes with gravy. Some charity for the priest means someone else when I'll pray for your soul with fervor. And I do pray for those who I have anointed. However, an emergency is an emergency. When it comes upon you, don't be afraid to call the parish priest. So do as Jesus did. Strive to accept God's will. Third rule for dying. Do as Jesus did. Give your death away. Seeing a pattern here? Truthfully, you'll always be at the center of your own death. That is why you can give it away, but you have to accept it to give it away. My mom, when she lay dying, uh, had some last words I think she planned out for her kids. And her last words were, faith is the greatest gift. Uh, her dad had done something very similar with a priest who gave his funeral homily, said that my mom's dad, whose name was Walter, he was from Switzerland, uh, at he died, his last words were, the things of this world are as of naught. You see, mom and her dad had prepared for their death and thought of what they wanted to say to try to give their death to the ones they loved and give them something of faith to remember them by. Uh, they gave their death away. It's like when Jesus on his cross said, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so, uh, Forgive the sinner hanging on the cross next to you. Do as Jesus did and accept God's will. Do as Jesus did and give your death away. Because you can't give your death away unless you accept it. And you can't give your death away unless you do what Jesus did and reconcile with those you're estranged with. You know, during the Civil War, soldiers were advised to have pictures of loved ones around them when they died. They probably had last words to say because that was part of the Ars Moriendi, which is, I think, where my mom got it. Uh, often soldiers wrote final letters home. If you remember the Ken Burns uh, documentary, The Civil War, it was an award-winning winning film, and it really can be watched again. It was so good. It began in its first, or ended in its first uh, episode with a letter home from Major Sullivan Ballou, who was killed at the first Battle of Bull Run. They found this letter in his luggage after his death, and they gave it to his wife at the end of, uh, at the, end of the war. And this is how his letter to his wife concluded. But, O oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you, in the gladdest days and in the darkest nights. Always, always, and if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. As the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone, and I wait for thee. We shall meet again. Do husbands ever write letters to their wives like that anymore? You know, his body was buried near the battlefield after I think his legs had been amputated. And later, after the war, Sarah had him dug up and brought home. And she never remarried, raised their two sons. And at her death, she was buried next to Sullivan's side, where I think to this very day, they both wait for the resurrection. And anybody can go to their graves. It's why you want to have your body interred. Their family knows where they are and that they're safe. The art of dying well helps us to come to terms with the life that goes on within us. Because when we lose our life, we give our life away, we do that 
so that God can give it back to us and healed. God bless you. This has been Oro Valley Catholic.